Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a history of the climate crisis with Alice Bell and her new book, Our Biggest Experiment. Dr Alice Bell is a climate campaigner and writer based in London. She co-runs the climate change charity Possible, working on a range of projects from community tree planting to solar-powered railways. She has a BSc in History of Science from UCL and a PhD in Science Communication from Imperial College, and she was a lecturer in Science Communication at Imperial for several years. As an academic, she's also worked at Sussex's Science Policy Research Unit, City University's Journalism School and UCL's Technology Studies Department. And she's written for a host of publications, including The Guardian, The Times, The Observer, Mosaic and New Humanist, and was also the editor of the magazine for the future, How We Get to Next. And we're going to be talking about Alice's first book, which is Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. Alice, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, what your aim is with this book. Uh, to tell stories. It was definitely about telling stories. I kind of got into the history of the climate crisis as a topic uh, about 10 years ago now when I was, I was working at Imperial, putting together a course on climate change. And for the first time, I had to really look at climate change in the eye. You know, all my, my whole life, I kind of feel like I sort of studied at school. It was always there, you know, like from primary school, you'd learn about it. As long as I was old enough to know a bit about science, I kind of knew about climate change. But I didn't really look at it properly, kind of avoided it. And then I had this, I had to do it for work. So I had to look at it in detail. And um, I read all the science and it made me very depressed. But it also left me with quite a few questions. I was sort of like, well, this has told me a lot. And this is really important and very depressing. But I've got more it's not told me everything it's left me with more questions than it's answered and I found that reading the history kind of helped me understand it more but also just introduced me to all this host of interesting people who'd done ridiculous things and I just found myself wanting to share those stories with people um so I thought the book um from a more kind of I guess my day job as a climate campaigner I thought this might appeal to, to more people who might otherwise be put off by some of the the more kind of graphs and statistics and uh, of climate change but also I just really love telling people about the weird things that I found about the gas industry. Tell us where the title Our Biggest Experiment comes from. It comes from a line that was written in a research paper in the mid-50s by a guy called Roger Revelle, who was one of the first scientists to really take climate change seriously and not just study it or talk to people about it, but really lobby for, for money to do more research into it something described as the grandfather of climate change research. Uh, and he was writing a paper about the ocean. He was an oceanographer. And it's something that he'd studied for decades by that point. Um, he was quite a senior scientist by the 1950s. And he'd, he'd started looking at these things in the 20s and as, when he was doing his PhD, looking at kind of the age of the ocean, like how long it takes for a molecule, a particular chemical to work its way through the ocean. I mean, following carbon through the ocean, they've been thinking, all right, well, we think that, yeah, we're belching out all these fossil fuels, but the ocean is absorbing a lot of carbon dioxide for us, just like the rainforests are absorbing it for us. 
they breathe it in for us. Um, they help turn it over. And then he realised that actually the ocean doesn't breathe in nearly as much of carbon dioxide as he thought it had, um, because the ocean's ocean's too sensible to do that. If you know anything about the chemistry of salt water, you know they do this thing called buffering. It takes the carbon in, the carbon dioxide in, but it doesn't want to. If it took too much of it in, it would get too acidic, and it doesn't want to do that. So it kind of kicks some of it out again. And he, he realised that, and he was like, "Oh dear, we are relying on the ocean to mop up a lot of our problem, and it's not doing all of that." Um, and so he said, we are undertaking a geophysical experiment on the earth. Um, and he used that line while briefing science, uh, politicians in Congress uh, in the 50s. And then it is reused by him and by lots of other people, including Margaret Thatcher in, uh, in one of her speeches in the late 80s. And I thought that that would work as a title for the book. OK, so there's absolutely tons of great stuff in this book. and We're barely going to scratch the surface on it in this interview. But what we'll do is in, in the first half, we're going to look at some of the things that cause climate change. And then in the second half, we'll look at some of the look at the development of climate science or you know various aspects of climate science. And so we're going to look at coal first of all, and and you know our adoption of as humans as coal as the first fossil fuel really that we use on mass. And I guess to begin with that as well, it's obviously you know something we think about climate change now is that. It's obvious that a tiny proportion of countries make the most effects on the climate and a larger proportion of countries will feel the brunt of that harder than we will, uh, the developing world. And interestingly, this sort of dynamic goes right back to the beginning of the steam age in the, you talk about, you know, the close links of the development of steam in the Industrial Revolution to, you know, plantations in the West Indies, for instance. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the of first pickup of, of fossil fuels on an industrial scale. So it'd be like, you can trace back the British coal industry to the Romans. And then when the Romans left, the Brits kind of didn't really, you know, the people who were left didn't really want to to use it because it's very polluting but they kind of they chopped down all their trees and so didn't have much choice but they didn't really do it on a big scale until James Watt and his steam engines and industrial revolution but all of that that wave with the industrial revolution is just seeped in colonial politics I mean Watt who's part of the firm Baltimore and Watt that sold these steam engines a lot of that you know their friends in the Lunar Society in Birmingham a lot of them were abolitionists they were people who were campaigning against slavery but um, they'd had no problems selling steam engines to to plantations in the Americas and the Caribbean. Also, particularly the steam trains, you know, the first steam trains, uh, first public railway line, you know, the, the stories of George Stevenson and his rocket um, going into Manchester. You know, that line between Liverpool and Manchester was all about travelling cotton and transporting cotton. It was about, the, you know, moving cotton from the docks at Liverpool to Manchester where it would be turned into cloth. And the ended up being used for passengers and people decided actually we like these trains not just for moving stuff around but for moving people around and we had commuting and the change to our, our work like uh, working style sort of thing that we've in the last year or so kind of started to reject but it started off just being about moving cotton and very quickly it started to be used also with you know this the famous thing about the British building the railways in India and we gave them railways well we built railways that would help us move the crops that we wanted to move around you know particularly again cotton and then steam ships were first developed uh, for passengers I mean they were initially done with passengers but very quickly found a market along the Mississippi which again was for often for goods which related to slavery and a lot of yeah a lot of the early stories of the uptake of these machines that kick-started our addiction to fossil fuels were all wound up in colonial politics at the time. At a distance it's hard to imagine how and you talk about this in the book how you know people in say Victorian times at the height of the, the sort of industrial revolution at the height of the use of coal and then right into post-war Britain when we think about you know London pea supers and stuff it's hard to imagine now how people put up with 
that pollution in their daily lives for so long. Yeah, it's one of the things that really astounds, astounds me. I'm just like, how did you put up with this? Like, how did you tolerate it? And sort of reading, um, you know, papers about from people who've, who've spent their life researching Victorian attitudes to coal dust, which some people have done, which is, I think, an amazing thing to be able to spend your life doing. Um, and, you know, they sort of argue that, that actually the Victorians kind of developed this idea for themselves that they, they really didn't like dirt but for some reason coal dirt was kind of clean dirt it was good dirt and they would celebrate it sometimes you know even into the 20th century people would be ah oh, london's got terrible pollution isn't that a good sign of how great we are and how advanced we are you know other countries abroad they don't have pollution like us <laughs> this is I mean, it's typically weird ways in which british people kind of develop a sense of self but they cough through it i mean it's and it's not even that long ago um my mum remembers walking in london and walking past her own mother in the street and them not seeing each other uh, and they just became normal. I mean, like today, as a my day job is as a climate campaigner, and people often come up to me. You know, I give a talk about climate change or whatever, and they come up to me afterwards and they go, oh, "I see, it's because we can't see climate change. Back in the in, in the fifties, we we could see the smog, and so we got rid of it, and we had the Clean Air Act." And I'm like, "Well, yes, but that's over a century of living with it. You know, people." saw and coughed through and were dying in the streets and still didn't do anything about it uh, and maybe that helps us understand a bit more about kind of how we put up with climate change today and you know, people just put up with a lot of pollution you talk in the book about the you know the rise of oil and various different forms of oil as initially as a means of lighting an obvious you know a place before the before the rise of electricity and when i think of oil you know i think of Texas or you know there will be blood or something and those derricks pumping oil out but the first mass industrialized oil industry was whale oil so I wanted you to say something about the the rise and fall of of the whale oil industry because again it's often thought that once we stopped once we introduced petroleum oil that was all good and good and dandy for the whales then because we stopped killing whales on mass but that's not how it happened at all. No, it's uh, you kind of think, oh, did uh, did the emergence of the gas industry and the oil industry save the whale? Sadly, not. People just found other reasons to kill whales, and they developed an industry. Well, they've also found uh, ways to take whale oil and change the it as a chemically so it would be more solid and would turn it into lipstick and paints and all sorts of other household products which have now been then replaced by often actually petroleum-based products um because there was that we did phase out whaling for that kind of market you know obviously there are still some places where whaling happens but not not to make you margarine like it did in in the 50s and it it's yeah, that kind of market grew in the 20th century at the point where we'd stopped slaughtering whales and turning them into oil to light our homes. But we, we went out on ships that were fueled by coal and oil, to, which meant that we could go further and find more whales and kill even more of them. So actually more whales died after we stopped the kind of first stage of the whaling industry for lighting um, than before. But I, 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 when I first came into studying the whaling bit, I thought, oh, this will just be like maybe a couple of lines at the beginning of the, of the oil industry bit, just to be a nice bit of colour that like before we drilled for oil in the ground we, we used to slaughter it as whales at sea but then as I studied more and more I realized how much it prefigured the oil industry and patterned some of the the nature of the oil industry it was this big multinational industry uh, again like all linked up with all sorts of other geopolitics encoding colonialism um, so you have a large amount of the trade going back and forth between the Americas and Europe being about transporting whale oil to Europe to light European cities and then they 
take back uh, goods to sell to Americans. Um, it, some of the uh, ships in the Boston Tea Party were were ships that would often, I mean, they were carrying tea during the Boston Tea Party, but they would uh, then be filled up with whale oil to go back from Boston to Europe. And then there was a sort of interruption of that for the particularly the British market um, because of the American Revolution. And so the Brits started investing in finding their own whales. And it was actually an ancestor of mine. I don't mention this in the book, but I sort of... I, I discovered a bit about some family history I was going. He went out, he got a tip off from Captain Cook um, that there were whales around Australia. And he set up this system where where previously he'd sent tea over to America and whale oil back. When he went down to Australia, he'd uh, take convicts down and then he'd swap it for whale oil to take back. Uh, And then this built a whole infrastructure of whale oil street lighting in, in Europe, which eventually was replaced by gas lighting and kerosene, which came from oil. And then obviously gas is eventually superseded for lighting by electricity. And I wanted you to tell us something about the, um, well, you start off the book as as a sort of, I guess, a symbolic place to sort of introduce Britain at the height of the Industrial Revolution with the, you know, the great exhibition. But um, then I want, I want you to talk about the Chicago Exposition, the World Columbian Exposition in 1893, the, the famous white city. And, and you talk about how, at the time, again, you know, we often talk about things that happened in the past as things that happened in their own time, and we perhaps shouldn't look back on them with modern eyes. But at the time of the World Columbian Exhibition, there was a lot of people who were trying to expose the fact that that white city wasn't so wasn't so pure white after all. Well, yeah, there was quite a lot of whitewashing going on there in more way than one. Yeah, I, I started with the, the Great Expo- Exhibition in South Kensington um, because it's very much a story of coal. And then as we move on through the various oils and to the electrical era at the end of the 20th century, we see other cities have tried to replicate these kind of great exhibitions. And America is very keen to have one, just like Britain wanted to show off that they were the very best in the whole of the world at technology in 1851. America was feeling like they could kind of stake a claim on that. And particularly there was a lot of American leadership in terms of electricity. America, I think, quite rightly felt that it was leading the way in electricity and really want to show this off with the what was known as the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And it was known as that because it was was the anniversary of uh, the landing of Columbus. And I mean, th- now we look back on this and go, oh, why are you celebrating Columbus, these terrible people in the olden days? Well, back at the time, lots of Native American communities complained a lot about the idea that America was celebrating its origins as being when Columbus arrived. And also it was a real, it was a real celebration of electricity. I mean, this is amazing. It's one of the things that made me really reflect on how powerful, like emotionally powerful and culturally powerful these technological changes were, not just measuring in what. Like more People who have visited this exhibition probably saw more uh, more light or artificial light than they would have ever seen in their lives before. Like Lives were very, very dark compared to what they are now. Now we think about light pollution, we worry about it. I'm always complaining about how I, don't, I can't get it dark enough at night trying to sleep at home. But it used to be really, really dark for most people. There's this great story, it didn't actually make its way into the book, but I found when I was researching it about Erasmus Darwin, who's Charles Darwin's grandfather sort of side character and history of basically most science <laughs> um but he uh he had this story of like going to visit someone in the evening and he had to see his his clock using uh, an old fish that left off some light when it rotted <laughs> you think you're relying on rotting fish to give you light to see the time that's so different from the kind of lives we have now where we can just shine a torch and uh, if anything the problem is it's too light but so they, they were showing off all this electrical light and it was all the buildings were painted 
bright white to show this off. Um, they changed the, the electricity generators. They had been running on coal, but that was too polluting. So they changed them to run on oil so they wouldn't smudge the whiteness. There's a story that they actually invented spray paint, white spray paint for, for the whole event, which is probably an urban myth. And is, they probably had forms of spray paint before then, but they certainly spent a lot of time and uh, new technologies spraying down all of these buildings these neoclassical buildings to show off a kind of white gleam that the electricity light could, could bounce off and it was it was white in more ways than one you know it was, it was a very white caucasian idea of what america was it was a very white idea of what technology was what the future was and it was a really interesting critique of that that i found which was written by ida b wells and frederick douglas and a few others which was a collection of essays basically saying well the title is you know asking why there aren't african-americans at the Columbian exhibition and then listing all the ways in which the exhibition is a bit kind of skewed in terms of its vision of American future and technology and all the many African-Americans and who, who could have been contributing to, to this event. And also particularly Wells really skewering them saying like, you are talking about being we're talking about progress you're talking about america being this great space that is celebrating how wonderful it is and there are people being lynched you know she's famous for the investigative journalism she did on lynching and i I think it's a really good example of how there were so many criticisms of things like that at the time but also i think a lot of the critique that they put towards the columbian exhibition is one that science communication and technology promotion people today should be thinking about like whose vision of the future are you putting on display here you know when you walk around somewhere like the science museum whose vision of, of progress is this and are we really that progressive you know what are we missing it's it's a really tight critique and it's it really stands up sadly in some ways it's still very relevant to read today millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex Bell and we're talking about her book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. And 
Alex, as I said in in the second half, I want to have a sort of very you know whistle stop tour through the uh, the development of climate science to give it a, a very broad a broad turn and and to start with you talk about gases and you know the discovery of gases carbon dioxide and oxygen and, and nitrogen and what have you and you, you tell us a story about Joseph Priestley um, you mentioned in the first half Erasmus Darwin and how you know Erasmus Darwin is one of these figures that you know features in the entire history of science and of course that probably is because there's about 10 guys, you know, and they all used to go to the same clubs and hang out together and know each other and were related to each other and whatever and appear in so, in so many stories. And what was fascinating in the story of somebody like Priestley and also others that you talk about is the, is the extent to which a lot of them were sort of outsiders, like religious dissenters and non-conformists and therefore were barred from traditional education in terms of like Oxford and Cambridge. We know obviously that one of the things that the Industrial Revolution is famous for is creating middle-class nouveau riche of like, you know, mill and factory owners who made loads and loads of money but didn't come from the traditional aristocracy. But it's also fascinating to see this, that there's this whole group of scientists who invent the modern world in lots of ways but are also considered weirdos and outsiders by a lot of mainstream society. Yeah, I'm, I think my favourite character actually in all of that is a guy called James Sadler, who was mm. a balloonist and baker and partly responsible for our development of nitrous oxide. So uh, he was a baker in Oxford, but in his spare time, he did a lot of science and he was really into ballooning, which most British scientists had sort of written off and said this was just a silly thing that French people did but he really was into it scientifically he felt that there's a lot of possibilities of going up into the air and studying the skies he really wanted people to go up in balloons and learn more about the weather and the climate and he did some he managed partly because he lived in Oxford he managed to get sort of he sort of crowdfunded it by getting the students to because they liked watching the balloons so he put on a show for the students and be able to do a science off the back of it and the students would give him a bit of money each and between that, that that collection, he'd have enough to do his, his launch. He got so good at the science that the chemistry professor at Oxford had to bring him in to improve the labs because Oxford being slightly behind the times, it being quite so stuffy about who it let in, in contrast to the Scottish universities that were much more open and much more up for new new. You know, exciting new subjects like chemistry. Oxford was a bit behind and realised it needed to catch up. So it got the local baker to improve their labs, which uh, is something you can tell any uh, Oxford Cambridge graduate you might know. Um, but he, yeah, he went in and did that. And then he, him and this professor went off, that professor got a bit bored working at Oxford because it was, it was quite boring for people like him at the time. So they both went off and set up this clinic in Bristol, which had this vision of being able to use gases to heal people. I mean, it didn't work, but you could see how at the time they thought it was a nice idea. And they they developed all sorts of new processes for uh, or machines for allowing people to sort of collect different gases and inhale them, which is where the nitrous oxide stuff comes in. And yeah, but Sadler, Sadler did all sorts of ballooning, you know, he helped, helped chemistry labs at Oxford University. He was a baker. And he's not really, he occasionally pops up in history stories i think somebody make a movie about him he's one of those sort of forgotten people in history another way of looking at well well i just mentioned that all of these guys all knew each other but uh james watt's daughter was treated at that uh, at that oh, clinic every book i read i'd be like oh they all knew each other and it's i mean it's a stuff <laughs> I suspect there were fewer people, but still, <laughs> um, it's partly, I think, that also they just wrote up about each other. It's sort of the stories that get remembered. Uh, but they were very well networked. And yeah, the, this group of people had, uh, when they moved to Bristol, they managed to get fun through networks of, of people who are this lunar society. 
which both Watt and Bolton were actually James Watt met Matthew Bolton through this Lunar Society. They were called the Lunar Society because it was so dark back then. They used to have dinner once a month to get together and talk about science. These people, are, uh, these men around Birmingham, and they would meet on the night of a full moon so they'd have enough light to be able to go home after their big dinner um, together from when I was at university, I re- first read up about them and I thought they were just sounded so amazing. This weird collection of things they'd talk about. And it was Erasmus Darwin kind of was at the centre of it. And he was this, one of the few that had gone to Oxford, been able to be part of the kind of mainstream British intellectual life in a way that all of the others had really been kind of uh, pushed out from or not allowed in for to. Uh, and then had studied in, in Scotland and come back and worked as a doctor. But as it was a time kind of you were if you were sort of someone who was interested in science at the time you might be a doctor but you'd often have that was your way of it was the only way of really being a professional scientist there weren't many jobs to to do uh, to be a scientist other than that so he had met his passions were all sorts of different areas of science and he he wrote poetry about his science and these different inventions and he had all these other friends that would come around and um I remember when I first read about them when I was at university I thought they were great and me and a friend at university uh, relaunched a, a society so if you study history of science at UCL now you'll be invited to join their lunar society which I set up in memory of the <laughs> <laughs> these, these weird men that used to meet in the full moon. But yeah, they did all sorts. I mean, they were involved. Wedgwood, um, who, I mean, these people had influences in not just our discovery of gases and our understanding of nitrous oxide or ballooning, which would lead to understanding the weather. They were, it was through those networks that Charles Darwin ended up on the Beagle. And then how later Fitzroy, the captain Fitzroy, who he went on the Beagle with, would end up having, getting a job to run the, the Met Office and, and study weather and kind of invent weather forecasting. But also people like Wedgwood basically developed modern marketing, like he invented the catalogue and buy one, get one free deals and kind of modern consumer culture, which is also fuels so much of the climate crisis. It's so weird how they, this, group of men in Birmingham at the end of the 18th century just seem to run through all of so much of the story. They haunt every bit of it. We'll take some small steps towards our understanding of the idea that the climate as a world system can change for good or bad. And and often in those old days, people are worried that it's going to get colder rather than rather than warmer. And one of the events that, that causes a lot of that thinking is uh, the 1815 eruption of, of Mount Tambora over in, in Indonesia, a massive volcanic eruption. And what happens then? Well, the weather got a bit rubbish in lots of parts of the world. Um, it blocked out the sun and it made things cold. There was one of the poets at the time described it as end of the of the world weather. And it, you can try, it's something that historians of art and music have traced back from the time. You can sort of see really gloomy music and, and paintings because just for several years, the weather was just really bad. And this had come kind of, it was part of what you can see as a longer period, which is sometimes described as the Little Ice Age, which sort of goes back several hundred years before that. And of it just being very cold, prolonged periods of time um and this volcanic eruption seems to have pushed one particular you know responsible for one particular wave of it um and it's famous for all sorts of different kind of spin-offs probably most notably frankenstein because mary shelley was hiding from the rain with her friends around lake geneva and they all started telling ghost stories um and one of her her monster story became frankenstein it's also the first vampire novel as well so um we have climate change to thank for buffy the vampire slayer one of the first people to, well, the first person, we should say, I shouldn't sell a short, the first person documented now to have identified a link between carbon dioxide and the heating up, the properties it has to, to make the, the planet heat up, was a woman, Eunice Newton Foote, who you talk about at the very beginning of the book and then again later on. And she's someone who has basically been pretty much forgotten by history until now. 
Yeah, she was um, paid attention to her at the time. So she was just, she was a middle-class American woman interested in science. So was her husband. They both did science at home, which she kind of could back then. And um, they both were going to give papers at a big scientific conference in, in America. She lived in New York State. She was also uh, a women's rights campaigner. She sort of got interested in all sorts of different things, clearly. And she one day she decided to do a study to present at this conference that was coming up on how different gases trapped heat. So she set up a small experiment where she had different vials of gases uh, one with lots of carbon dioxide in it and they put them on her window ledge to see how on a sunny day to see how how they the heat from the sun went through these different gases and she concluded she noticed that the one filled with carbon dioxide held the heat that she realized that carbon dioxide had the capacity to heat to hold heat for a very for, for quite a while as well and so she wrote up uh, by then we had from uh, a French scientist, Joseph Fourier, we already had kind of the origins of what we now call the greenhouse effect idea. So she kind of had a sense that the earth was surrounded by a sort of insulating blanket of, of gases. And she said, well, if our atmosphere was full of lots of carbon dioxide, if this insulating blanket was made up of lots of this heat trapping gas, then the climate would get very, very hot indeed. And this was seen at the time as kind of interesting scientifically. It helped us understand a bit more about gases. And it was written up in a a few places it was mentioned in a scientific american article um and there were the odd sort of comment about oh this is a bit of science from the ladies so wasn't that nice uh but generally it seemed to be taken seriously uh but then it was forgotten which was probably no small part due to the fact she was a woman um and people didn't really find her again until the last five ten years and now i think this idea of a woman who who raised the alarm on climate change and in, in 1856 and then was ignored resonates with other people uh, and so she's celebrated and i think rightly celebrated people want to know more about her there's no photograph of her that nobody can find a photograph of her we think that probably a photograph of her exists because she was a resolute, relatively wealthy woman in the place that she was at the time that she was there must be a photograph taken of her but no one has archived it saying this is Eunice newton foot who wrote that article in 1856 so we can't find it so there's this hunt on um there's some scientists in america that are using artificial intelligence to go through loads of archives to see if they can find her so i really hope that maybe in a couple of years we'll have a, a photograph currently when i give talks about the history of climate science i have all these pictures of of dead old white guys and then a blank slide which is just all i have for her but yeah she's a she's an interesting woman but she did it was just theory for her she uh, we now know with all the advantages of modern science that the earth was already warming because of human actions because of us chopping down trees and burning fossil fuels but she had no way of knowing that at the time and it would be another hundred years um until really anyone really worried about it or a few other scientists between her and, and the kind of the guy roger Avelli, who who talked about this great geophysical experiment um in 1956 but that was that hundred year gap between the two of them well yeah i was going to say so the next thing i was going to ask was when do people first start to identify the human beings are having an effect on on climate change are causing it and even then people are still not necessarily thinking they're noticing this is happening some people might even think it was a good thing but they're not necessarily thinking that it's a catastrophic thing or if it is then it's a long long way into the future yeah and people have talked about human impacts on climate change on climates particularly in a localized level way uh, for decades centuries even um but this idea that maybe we might this that we might be changing it through through creating uh, carbon emissions. It was this theory that maybe carbon dioxide levels were different in the past when the dinosaurs were around, and or they were you know they were lower um, when the, they pre- appreciated this idea that had been 
periods where it was much colder, they knew about the ice age, they figured that out. And they thought maybe that's why we had an ice age was because the carbon dioxide levels were lower. And they hadn't really thought about, there was no sense that humans really would have had a, a role in that. I think for Victorians, they, um, you know, they were spending a huge amount of time ripping, some of them ripping huge holes in the earth, mining coal and, and, uh, and drilling for oil. And then they were totally transforming the built environment around them with these new factories, with railroads. I mean, the huge change to the built in, to the environment caused by building railroads would have been, you know, humongous. And building around Manchester, all these new factories and then all this air pollution. But they still felt that nature was so much more powerful than man. They thought, you know, there was a fair bit of, of arrogance that, that they could control bits of nature, that they were moving plants around in different parts of the world, all the different breeding of different chickens that they do, particularly after thinking about evolution and genetics. But they didn't, still didn't think that they, they would really be able to impact the earth to the extent that I think now feels sort of like intuitive to us now and as citizens of the 21st century we're like oh well obviously humans have really polluted the earth like the idea of the Anthropocene and stuff doesn't seem so shocking to us but I think 150 years ago even 50 years ago it really did and so they just thought oh this was something science fiction wise that possibly we could ever burn enough coal that we could heat the earth that we could change the weather and so when even when in in the kind of turn of century sort of late 19th century early 20th century when people were like oh well in theory actually we you know this stuff that had been said a few decades before that if we had lots of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere it could get hot maybe we could do that from burning lots of fossil fuels they didn't think it would happen until a long way off uh, and they did initially think it would be quite nice that it might be a bit warmer and then the, there was some lab research that made it look as if the sort of study that that foot had done kind of looking at carbon dioxide in isolation might was all fine but if you thought about it in the larger complex system of the atmosphere actually it didn't trap so much heat so it's people sort of there's an article from a newspaper and i think 1912 that sometimes goes viral and people like to send to me going look we knew about climate change in 1912 and like in 1912 that was slightly fringe that was slightly fringe science to think that it had sort of sparked a bit at the beginning of the 10th century and then kind of been seemingly disproved and it wasn't until kind of the 30s and 40s that people started to go back to that and reevaluate that lab experiment and do other research and go actually no it is a problem and looking back at the temperature records that by the 1950s went back quite a long time you could discern a, a trend in global heating um, so there's a guy called Guy Callender in 1938 who went to the Smithsonian weather, weather data and he looked back at four decades of weather data and he could see that there had been in the kind of first four decades of the 20th century you could see a warming of about a third of a degree celsius he from that also put it together with carbon dioxide levels and went i think we need to go back and look at this uh which then after the war more and more scientists did and kind of went oh whoops okay to finish off and i'm just going to for a moment imagine that we're um we're recording this interview not for little atoms but for the um the new news channel gb news and <laughs> Um, obviously, as the presenter on that show, I probably don't believe in this stuff. And so in an attempt to own you, Alice, the, uh, the author of this book about the climate crisis, I might describe you as a tree hugger. And so to finish off, would you tell us the incredible story of who the original tree huggers were? Oh, yeah. Like, let's, um, let's celebrate the tree huggers as incredible, radical brave people. So the first tree huggers were women in northern India who uh, came from a community which really valued trees. Like lots of communities really value trees because it, they give us shade, they help. They may give us uh, medicine, they will give us fruit, um, they'll give us all sorts of, they're also just really nice to look at. Everyone loves trees. And so this, this community just like 
you know, they're like trees. I know they're particularly important to them culturally. Uh, like it is true of, of cultures all around the world. And one of the local rulers in, in the area decided they were going to fell all the trees because they wanted to, I think, build a palace or build something. And they went in and ordered their, their armies to go and chop down these trees. And these brave women went out and said, no, you can't have our trees. Uh, and they literally put their bodies between the axes and the trees by wrapping their arms around them, which... We might say is hugging, but it's actually that's a bit of a kind of like literally cuddly way of putting it. You know, they were they were putting their bodies between the axes and the trees, and the the axe men, I think, perhaps surprisingly, went fine, all right, and chopped them the women up. Um, and so these women became martyrs. They died for the trees. And they became martyrs and a huge movement of, of tree huggers emerged um, in the area so much so that the local leader had to say oh no we will protect the trees and still like many 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 years on this you know this is this was happening in the seven in 1730 like hundreds of years ago and still today people collect to commemorate these very brave women and that they lost their lives to the trees well they lost their lives to the people who were trying to chop down the trees uh, and you know celebrate the importance of human relationships to the natural world and it's not a cuddly fluffy thing of going like oh i like a tree trees are nice it's like well we really rely on trees we need them and uh, it's quite a serious point behind that and then there was also another wave in the 20th century of of people who kind of drew on those stories to, to promote uh, again kind of environmental protection and then the importance of the environment to, to as people's livelihoods and the problem of other groups sort of coming in and saying well this is mine you know it's about land rights it's about the ability for local people to kind of have control of their own environment it's about you know very important issues it's not about just going oh cuddling a tree is nice although I would also say that cuddling a tree is nice and if you've never done it I would highly recommend it it's just really pleasant you know you don't need to be having an axe man running at you to hug a tree I would highly recommend uh, just to do it for fun. So I've been talking to Alex Bell. We've been talking about her book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you for having me on. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.